Hey everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Brendan Carr. Today's guest is Dr. Mark Cuchizella. Mark is the founder of the United States Air Force Efficient Running Program and the author of Born to Run. Well, Mark, my first question is, you, you talk a, a lot in the book about specific things about running, but in general, so much of your book kind of bucks conventional wisdom. And I'm, I'm wondering, how, how do you think about that? What is your thought process around what you latch onto and what you challenge? Yeah, so Brendan, I'm 52, and I think to buck conventional wisdom, you have to live at least a few years and see what's going on with the big picture, with healthcare, with running for Look at people who are living well for longer periods of time, not, you know, sending a PR one year and, you know, falling off the cliff after that, because that really is, you know, like yourself, you're a runner. People stay healthy and happy running, and it's not so much about what time they got on a certain season. It's 20, 30 years later. Mm -hmm. Can they still go out there and enjoy themselves? And, you know, if they do have a performance goal, hit that, you know, so... Yeah, I mean, a lot of people do want to line up for races, but if you get unhealthy, you get hurt, burn out, you know, then you're done, and, and it's hard to get back into the sport. In healthcare, we can go into a lot of topics. I mean, it's all over the media now. Every day, there's, you know, what they call a medical flip-flop or reversal. So I probably in most fields, you know, what we learn in school, you know, half of it may be wrong, half of it may be right. And I don't think that's, you know, atypical for healthcare. But, but human lives are at stake, too. So I think in, in healthcare we have to be honest with people. And, and when we have been wrong with something or maybe not so sure, we need to come clean and tell the general population that just so they can make their own decisions, not just follow empirically what someone in a white coat might say, which might not be true today. Mm -hmm. And what would be um, like, a, like a big example of that that, that you're, you're particularly interested in? Yeah, probably the one that has the most impact on public health, and I'll be, you know, blunt about it, is I probably, you know, if you look at loss of human lives and suffering, you know, you're military and there have been multiple world wars and conflicts, you know, disease, infectious disease in the past. But if you look at human suffering since the U.S. Dietary Guidelines of 1980 and the vilification of uh, fats, you know, as causing heart disease and you know, what name you, you know, unfortunately, that was incorrect. Mm. And look at what's happened since 1980. You know, I'm in West Virginia, the most obese, most uh, diabetic state in the country. And, you know, every day people are losing their lives, you know, losing limbs, losing their kidneys, losing their eyesight, you know, and they followed this advice. And, and they're, they were fed this way in schools and in the military. Military rations are still based on those guidelines. You know, Air Force basic training goes through more craved cereal than any place on the planet. And they kind of pride themselves in that jokingly. And, you know, if any, you can look up how much sugar is in that. You might as well just have Snicker bars <laughs> for breakfast. But at least the Snickers have the peanuts. You know, craved cereal is like, you know, pouring sugar on top of white bread mm -hmm. and having that for breakfast. And you want to be a military soldier? I mean, I'm sorry, it's not going to work. And mm -hmm. obesity in the military is huge. Mm -hmm. You know, one in four kids can't even enlist these days coming out of high school because of obesity. And that's the main driver, lack of physical fitness. You know, if they can't pass that entry standard, they can't even get an opportunity to get out of a bad situation, you know, where they may be in their hometown, poor jobs, poverty. But think of in, in your career how many people you worked with were given opportunity just by being able to enlist, you know, get a job skill, 
get college paid for. Uh, you know, the yeah. world is your oyster then. Opportunity opens up. Mm-hmm. But opportunity shuts down pretty quick if you're an obese 10-year-old. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's well, not your fault. You know, it's not that obese mm-hmm. 10-year-old's fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Mark, you have, you have a story of, uh, of a young man in the Air Force who he failed the physical fitness test a couple times. And then you brought in some of your methods to, to help him get through that. Could you, could you tell us about that? Yeah, so the methods to pass a fitness test are really how to get healthy. So if you, a fitness test for the military isn't like, a, you know, we should all shoot for the highest score, which unfortunately some of the culture kind of sets that up, you know, and some people are natural runners and some aren't. You know, some people are stronger, the Army and different services kind of shape their fitness test for the specific skills of the job. So I, I view the fitness test as just a prerequisite for safety. You know, can you do your job? Can we send you downrange? Can we deploy you without you being a risk to yourself or others? And everyone, just like, you know, when you were on in service and, you know, I was active duty, you know, you get a call from the orderly room, you have to leave a urine sample. You know, every day of the week, you should be able to pass. It shouldn't be like you have to specifically train for one day. Mm-hmm. This is just a standard. But the rules of passing a fitness test every day is aerobic development, meaning slow down, you know, build mitochondria, build capillaries, reduce body fat, you know, make yourself a warrior. And that's mostly how you eat. You know, when you're eating junk food, it's hard to outrun that. You know, so when people eat a lot of sugar and junk food, they tend to store that in their bellies as fat, and they don't understand that. But that's, I talk about that in the book. You know, eating fat doesn't make you fat. Eating junk food, processed carbs, sugar drinks, you know, and they serve sugar drinks in a chow hall, Coca-Cola, Gatorade, juices, all that stuff. You know, and how do we expect people to pass their fitness test? Then we tell them to go out and run harder, and then they get hurt running. Mm. So slow down, work on your running mechanics, don't eat junk food. Get rid of the belly fat, which isn't by burning calories while running. It's by not eating the stuff that's going to make you store the fat to begin with. And then it all comes pretty clear. And, and you actually wake up with energy every day. Yeah. You know, I think we talked about Adam in the story, but he's not a unique person. You know, if you wake up with energy every day, it's not like, gosh, I have to go do PT. You want to do PT. Your mm-hmm. body's making this energy. And, and you probably remember when you were just, you know, in a good phase of training, you know, mm-hmm. when you weren't overtrained and you weren't hurt. Like, you would look forward to going out in the woods and running. You're like, wow, sitting in class all day, and you're just like a you know, a caged animal. Like, get me out of here. Yeah. I, I need to get out. You know, in Maine, just, geez, this beautiful places, unless it's the middle of winter <laughs> in the dark. But even then, that can be kind of spiritual when you're out there in the elements, as long as you've got decent clothes. I, some of the most enjoyable running I have is in, you know, the coldest, mm-hmm. you know, remote places. Mm-hmm. So how how did you specifically work some of that in with Adam was the the man in the book? Yeah, so if you're listening, so one thing is just understanding the zone that you need to run in to be able to tap into body fat. And then you just stay there because what you want to do is develop kind of a fat-burning engine. I mean, you you want to run on fat, not sugar, mm-hmm. which means you're living on that all day. You know, that's that's an efficient human being. So when we run hard, 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 our bodies default to sugar, sugar, sugar. You know, it's the easiest access uh, type of fuel. And a lot of people culturally in the military, too, it's like, you know, no pain, no gain. You know, easy is is one step below, like, I feel like I want to die. And that's kind of ingrained into people. But if you take, you know, a formula, simple, couple simple ways to know you're in that happy zone is are you happy and smiling is one. You know, if you can chat and talk. You know, you're probably in a better zone. If, <laughs> no, you're not there. You can do like 180 minus your age if you want to get a little more technical. 
and you just start running. So say you're a 30-year-old, put the heart rate monitor on, you know, 150 would be the zone, and if it beeps, slow down. And what you'll find is, as we describe in the book, you know, someone might be at 12 minute a mile before it beeps, and your temptation is to throw the heart rate monitor away and just, uh, that's, uh, you know, that's wasting my time, this is too slow. But you stay there, and it could even be a walk-run. But what you'll find is a couple months later, now that 12-minute a mile at that heart rate of 150 is now a 10-minute a mile at a heart rate of 150. Stay with it. Now it's an 8-minute a mile at a heart rate of 150. I mean, now you're kind of changing your body's physiology. Get rid of the sugar, and you've taken off a, you know 20 pounds of fat on the middle, too. So your effort to run a specific pace is a marker of your fitness, not your top-end gear, but what is your what we call it aerobic speed? You know how fast can you run while eating lunch, so to speak? Mm-hmm. You know if you're a soldier, you want to be able to to run for long periods of time while your brain is able to focus. I mean, the running is just the transportation to get you from one place or another. So you want to be like a you know a hybrid engine or an electric engine where you're highly efficient mm-hmm. at a, at the highest speed that your body can develop, if that makes sense. But mm-hmm. that takes patience. It's not a six week couch to PT test type of thing. This is years and years and years of just being an active human being. But it's never too late to start. That's the, you know, I forget who said this, you know, the best time to have planted a tree would have been 20 years ago, but second best time is today. So if you've been down a 10-year slide, it's it's okay. It's Mm -hmm. cool. Just start from the basics and work up. Yeah. And Mark, your own story follows this sort of arc too. You, you had a lot of learning along the way. You said you, you found out you were pre-diabetic. How, how did that come about and how did you make these changes? Yes, I've made several changes along the way, Brandon. The first one was understanding a little bit about running mechanics in the foot. So I was a track runner in college and we all did the same things. I think hurt 50% of the time, but that's how it rolled. And we were all type A, right? That's They're the kind of people that make it onto the track team. You're just a hard charger, you know, you can inflict pain in your body. That's kind of the epitome of, you know, a military soldier, you know, or an athlete. You know, you just, how much pain can we endure? Mm-hmm. But then things break. And, you know, that kind of sits with you until you kind of come to the day, well, maybe you can't run anymore. And that's a sad day. You know, I had my feet operated on in the year 2000 for my toes were all bent in and arthritic, you know, probably from misformed shoes, you know, malformed shoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, poor mechanics, not understanding, you know, how to run and, and uh, came out of that surgery. And, you know, the opinion from the medical side was, you know, running is bad for, for you, me, you know, i.e., because look what it did. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, my mind liked running. So a couple months later, I had to go figure it out. Mm-hmm. You know, so I started to look up running mechanics, you know, as you can imagine, how much uh, information or lectures did I get on running biomechanics in medical school and running injuries? <laughs> It was zero, and, yeah. and maybe worse than zero, because the paradigm we taught was treat a symptom. Mm-hmm. So we kind of thought we knew what to do with these things. Well, of course, brace the foot, give it more support, give it more cushion, um, you know, use ibuprofen, you know, use these medications, shoot steroids into things, because that's what we all just treated symptoms. But that doesn't work. You know, you got to get at the root cause. So I slowed down, um, started experimenting and trimming shoes, you know, playing with these minimal shoes that's before born to run or any of that stuff, mm-hmm. ultimately started running barefoot, you know, so that was kind of fixing the running. But my whole family is designed for heart disease, diabetes, obesity, all of these common things. So 
you know, I was working on a military project actually about six years ago and traveling around bases trying to help people with the fitness test. They, a new chief of staff had come on and he tightened the screws on the test. And I needed to learn why people were failing the test. And I noticed that obesity and, and failures traveled hand in hand. And that, that shouldn't be too surprising to people listening. But the question was why. I think the standard conventional assumption was, well, these people just need to eat less and exercise more. That's why they're obese. Mm. And I looked, you know, I started to just look at data. And I, be, I become a more of a, I guess, a, you know, the common word is a critical thinker. You know, but all of us progress from, you know, if we're a student, we're just trying to gather knowledge the more you work and the more you see people and the more you experience things yourself, you can't help but be more of a critical thinker, meaning you just question things. So anytime you see something, you kind of pause if you, your brain is saying, well, I assume this is true. So I questioned why they were obese, and I started to look at the data. Well, they're all shown up for the same PT. So clearly, these folks are, who are obese are exercising mm-hmm. the same, and they're going to the same chow halls, so they're mm-hmm. probably eating the same. So maybe there's something more I need to learn about obesity. And that's insulin resistance, carbohydrate intolerance, genetic attributes that are going to drive you to this. What are these people eating, you know, different than someone else? And I looked at my own labs at that time. And I was waking up at this time at two in the morning and having another bowl of cereal every morning. So I was becoming pre-diabetic. My body couldn't burn fat at all. You know, my average sugar level called an A1C was high. All of my metabolic markers, if you didn't look at me and say, here's like skinny Mark Runner, you would say this person is metabolically sick, you know, looking like any other West Virginian. Mm-hmm. And um, then I challenged nutrition. I just started to come across uh, literature that was really old literature that before, ni- again, the dietary guidelines, before 1980, every diet for diabetes or obesity was low-carbohydrate diets. Yeah. You know, it's the problem with sugar metabolism, high insulin levels. Insulin's a storage hormone. But when society and the medical establishment became afraid of fat, meaning, well, we think fat clogs arteries, they couldn't tell people to eat fat. Because mm. if you tell people not to eat sugar, but, of course, eating fat clogs your arteries, what, what, they have to eat something. So somehow conventional wisdom, just no matter what your condition is, don't eat fat. You know, American Heart Association, they still push that out, Mm -hmm. you know, reduce fat. When diabetes, you know, we've controlled smoking, so there's a reduction in heart disease now since 1980. But if you look at the data, that's because less people are smoking. Mm -hmm. But we're certainly doing nothing for obesity and diabetes, and, and that's the, you know, probably equal, if not higher driver today of heart disease in the upcoming generation and millennials. You know, people in their 30s now developing mm-hmm. heart disease. Mm-hmm. You know, these folks have heard the mantra on the smoking. And there's, of course, regulation. There's policy. You know, so yes. smoking now, even in my state, we're at best we've flattened it. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's not affordable. It's not accessible, meaning you can't just, uh, for kids especially, they, they can't just go to 7-Eleven and buy it. They, they're not of age. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not acceptable. Meaning if you want to smoke in a public place, you really can't or in your office. But sugar is the exact opposite. It's the most affordable thing. Yeah. Junk food, you people can use food stamps with that. Sugar sweetened beverages, number one. Mm-hmm. Every birthday party, every lunch, you know, brought into the office has bagels and muffins and mm-hmm. and it, you know, so and it's accessible. Everywhere you go, there's another vending machine. So how do you win? Mm-hmm. It's it's we need to attack policy there. Yeah. If we make any head road, and that's kind of what I'm after now. It's not a popular place to be, but 
you know, we got rid of sugar drinks in my hospital. That's a first step, mm-hmm. but we need to go further than that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's important too. Yeah. So that, you know, when I started to dig in brand into the literature and realized that I had this condition mm-hmm. and the treatment was remove the grains and the sugar. So I, I, I did that. And this was uh, six, seven years ago. And what I immediately, my goal wasn't to lose weight, but what I immediately noticed when I had my last bowl of cereal is I felt good. You know, I could have breakfast, you know, I could have a couple eggs, you know, throw some veggies in there and I'm good. Like I'm not needing a bar at 10 in the morning. Maybe if I'm busy and don't even need lunch, you know, I'll eat dinner later that Mm -hmm. night. But I felt like a normal, like a human again. I could eat dinner, not snack at night, go to bed, wake up the next morning even go for a run without a power bar or something beforehand, come back and have a nice meal. So I wasn't controlled by the sugar, Mm -hmm. which is also addictive too. So, you know, I'm pretty headstrong, so I I don't overthink the addiction. I just saw the medical effects of what was happening, and that was enough to make me get rid of all the cereal and breads. You know, I'd hoard this stuff. You know, if ever you were traveling and there were muffins and bagels, you'd keep them in your room just so you always had that. But I didn't understand it, and I'm trying to help medical people understand this too because we still push this out, you know, even to diabetics. You know, if you're a type 2 diabetic out there and you're told, well, eat whole grain bread, it's good for you, question that because mm-hmm. it's straight up. You, all you need is your glucometer. Have two slices of whole wheat bread, check your sugar before and an hour after, and just see what happens, yeah. and you'd be surprised. And it's a, like shock treatment. Mm-hmm. Maybe I shouldn't do that. Yeah, I, I've, I've recently made this sort of dietary change too, and and the thing I find is that it's it's liberating. For it's so liberating. Long, for so long, I was on the system where it was you get yeah, up in the morning, running. you eat something, you run, you eat something else, you have a Gatorade because you need to put all the sugar back, and it it was a constant chore to keep up with all of this feeding all the time. But it's um it's a huge paradigm shift um, to to alter that for sure. It is. And each person, I just, you know, there's no products or no hocus pocus here. It's just to think back, almost everyone has someone in their family lineage, like who was the last well person in your gene pool? Hmm. Well person, meaning the person who was like in their 90s and just went to bed and dropped dead, right? They didn't become a 20-year medical patient. Mm -hmm. And just look at how they lived. And I mean, these people ate, like in my state, I mean, gosh, it's hard to find a centenary, meaning a 100-year-old who hasn't like loaded up eggs their whole life. Because as you get older, you need that protein, especially to keep your muscle mass. You know, you need protein. So you need protein as you get older, and you need to lift heavy things. And it doesn't mean go to the gym, but look at, you know, old school well people. They just carry their own bags, right? They're climbing upstairs, Mm -hmm. but they're not eating white bread and jam for breakfast. They're eating (laughs) traditional foods, Mm -hmm. you know, bacon and eggs. You know, sure, throw some veggies if they're seasonal. But the, the heart of it is going to be seafood if they live near the, the coast. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have much seafood here in the middle of West Virginia. So, I mean, so, yeah, we're farmland. So, to tell them to eat the meat. So, I'm not afraid to tell, you know, my citizens here, meat and eggs are health food. Mm-hmm. They really are. And we need to come clean with that. You know, everyone's talking about the plants, the plants, the plants. So, I agree plants are good and they're health food. But you're missing another key thing if that's all you're eating. Mm-hmm. You do need high-quality sources of fat and protein. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but and see how you feel. Everyone's an N of one, right? That that's so true. So you and do I, you it know. for a month. You know, just mm-hmm. eat real food without the without the breads and the grains and the pastries and the rolls and 
all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and th- there there are still Veggies, little little exceptions and people who meat, I talk cheese, to are myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that you've talked about is um, is shoes and this idea that we needed more cushioning and more cushioning. And I remember as I was coming up as as a young runner, there was all of this thought on tweaking my shoes to find the perfect shoe with the perfect control. And I have a couple examples. Oh, you brought some shoes. I, th- I thought Old it'd be school. good to have Let's see what physical you got. examples. So you can oh, yeah, see. there's the Air Max. Is that the mm-hmm. air bladder in the back? Yeah, with the big, But then you got the Minimus. Big air heel. And then I've got the Minimal shoe. So for anybody who's watching this, they can see the physical difference in what we're talking about. Yeah. The distinction between these two heels. What's, what's the idea here with backing off on all of the control with the shoe? Yeah, because your foot is a pretty amazing you know, what would you even call it? Evolution, mechanical. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's 26 bones, 33 joints, you know, 100 muscle tendon insertion. So the foot's a spring, mm-hmm. you know, so it's a, it's a spring. And it's got a function like that. So a good, strong, stable foot that has mobility, when you hit the ground, you don't want cushion to cushion you. You want your foot to work and give you that energy back. So, well, watch a Kenyan run with or without shoes. You know, one who's been brought up barefoot, they have this perfect springy stride. And if the foot is not functioning well, if the foot is locked up, the ankle is locked up, even with a cushioned shoe, the forces, something's got to take the load. Mm. Think if you have a Hummer or a vehicle and you're riding on a dirt road and you lock the shocks out, Mm -hmm. you know, the chassis has to take the hit. Mm-hmm. So I see now in medical practice, you know, young folks age 50, you know, their knee, hip, they've got arthritis, you know. So if your foot is not able to take that load, your knee or your hip and your back is going to take it because it's got to go somewhere. So I try to help people learn how to get their foot in the game. And then running doesn't, it's not like thud, thud, thud. You know, if you go to a group and I've traveled around a lot to military bases and you know, there's a hundred airmen in the bleachers, and how many of y'all like to run? And there might be like one guy like you, Brandon, who ran high school cross country, or you know, ran a little in college or something. Raises their hand, and uh, you know, everyone's looking, you know, scorning because they all hate that kid, right? He's the little cross country kid. And the rest of them hate to run mm-hmm. because every step they're pounding their body that is painful. Mm-hmm. But you put them through a clinic, and I'll have them take off their shoes. I'll have them learn to run soft run slow. And what's crazy is you do a lap just super soft, super slow, maybe in their socks, maybe even in their bare feet, and you see a smile on their face. Mm-hmm. They don't realize it because you didn't like cue them to this. And you finish and, and you look around and you say, wait, I see about half of you doing something that I, I bet you wouldn't have believed you would have done. Mm-hmm. And what is it? And then someone will raise their hand, look, they're smiling. And mm-hmm. it's like, wow, so if you're happy, you're going to want to go do it again. Mm-hmm. So if I can, and that's slowing down too. So if I can, if you're a coach, you know, you've probably worked with kids, you know, if you're a coach, whatever that sport, if the kid wants to come back to practice the next day, that's it. You're Mm -hmm. an awesome coach. Mm -hmm. That's all. They don't want to come back to practice the next day, no matter what your technical skills or program is. You're not a good coach. You're something about what you're doing. So I just want them to wake up and not hate to run. Yeah. Because if they wanted to have a 20 or 30 year career, you know, I'm sorry, you know, it sucks to be you. You have to pass the fitness test. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't a corporate job. So embrace it. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want them to embrace the suck. I want them to embrace the joy and the health. 
Right? That's an army term, right? Embrace the Absolutely. suck. That's, they all approach it. I'm just going to embrace the suck for 30 years. Is that good for your endocrine system <laughs> in your brain? No, or in your joints. Then they get on, you know, profile disability, you know, discharge medical because they did embrace the suck and they herniated their disc in their back. Mm-hmm. That's not doing anyone any favors, but they, they kind of take pride in, you know, and it's sad. Yeah, I just, I, we, we need to do a better job at training soldiers and airmen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so, Navy members, you know, seamen and Marines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- this idea with, with backing off on the shoes and things allows for the foot to function differently. To feel the ground. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, it, and the another, shoe should be, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, and another thing that you've, you've talked about is in general posture being something to start with before strength. And I know when you know, another thing that I was often taught was if something is injured, it's because it's too weak. It's not, it's not strong enough to take what's going on. But I think a, a lot of it looking back was also the way that I was moving and my posture and things like that. So how does that come into play as a prerequisite? Yeah, posture is a good, I mean, really is a prerequisite for mm-hmm. anything. So mm-hmm. our bodies are designed to deal with load pretty well or we wouldn't have got here. So we're designed to deal well with compressive force. And if you're column is lined up well you know you could stack you know 10 olympic plates on your head and you won't feel it but if your column is off and you're loading it you know our bodies load two to three times our weight with every step but if that column is off think if you had a a stack of hockey pucks for example like 30 hockey pucks you know just think of all the vertebrae and you took the bottom hockey puck and you put it on a 10 percent grade you know, caution 10% grade, which is the elevation of that that shoe that you showed me, that Nike Air. What has to happen to all the other hockey pucks in that column so they don't fall over? Got to like make these little adjustments Mm -hmm. and then you hit the ground hard and now you have all these little adjustments and there's all these micro tears every time you hit the ground. Mm -hmm. So you don't wake up one day and, well, I just picked up this pallet the wrong way and herniated my disc these are chronic injuries you know that finally one day come to a painful threshold but we're doing little bits of damage every day to our body if we're not doing the movements correctly if you're doing good movement you're actually remodeling correctly so what you put in is what you put in so your body can correct all these things as long as you're putting the right message in but if you keep putting the wrong message in you know hundreds and thousands of times a day you know, you might be training fitness, but you're breaking your chassis down. Mm-hmm. So I think if you want a long time in the sport or in activity, you know, like anything, you know, get the movement down right. You know, if you're going to go lift, you know, don't load the bar until you've got the movement perfect. Mm-hmm. Same thing with running. I don't know why we ignore it in running. You know, if you're going to go to a good CrossFit gym, the instructor is going to make sure you've got the perfect movement before you're going to load the bar up. And you're never lift to failure. Mm. You know, because that's just teaching failure. But many runners run to failure. You know, you see them at the end of a PT session and they're just, you know, you look at them, their whole bodies are just in complete disaster mode, but they're like embracing the suck. But you wouldn't see that in the gym, right? The trainer would say, no, you're done. Mm-hmm. Or let's fix your mechanics, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's not rocket science. You know, it's like bring common sense back, you know, mm-hmm. learn the movement, right? Mm-hmm. practice the right movement yeah. it's like if you golf for example brandon like if you keep slicing the ball to the right because you can see it you're not going to go swing a thousand times with that same same swing to reinforce the movement pattern that makes you slice mm-hmm. you're going to kind of back off do a few tweaks get a nine iron blade with a little sweet spot 
you know, the most precise. You're not worried about hitting it far. You're just worried about hitting it perfectly every time straight, mm-hmm. reproduce it. Okay, then you can break out the big club. Yeah, yeah with, go, that, with that feedback, as you point yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, you got to have the movement down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we're screwing kids up because we put these big shoes on kids. And you see, you know, even in first or second grade, these kids have these big cloggy shoes and they, they don't like they don't move well. I mean, they're heavy, mm-hmm. they're stiff. They don't their feet don't work springy because they're in these casts. It's really sad. And then you see the kids in the more minimal shoes. You know, they're bouncing around, playing jump rope. They're looking good. So if you have kids out there, you know, keep your kids barefoot or in skinny skinny shoes mm-hmm. as long as as you can, mm-hmm. which would be forever. Mm-hmm. My yeah. kids are in all these skinny shoes. Their bodies like reject like you can't, their bodies reject shoes. Like they they just won't put them on because they can't move. They hate it. Yeah, I find that when I when I wear a, like a big clunky sneaker or something, that I'll first I'll you know I'll try it on. And it feels like soft and cushy, and that's pleasant. Uh, yeah. And then I'll, I'll go and run around and be going up an escalator or some stairs or something, and I feel like I I don't have the same sense of where my foot is going, and I, like like I might trip or something. And and when I wear the thin shoes, I, I have a much better sense of the ground. And that, that helps me to be more comfortable in them. Yeah. yeah, you have to feel the ground to stabilize yourself on the ground. Sure, like if you want to go to bed and you want to lay on a soft mattress, that's all cool. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were jumping off a three-story building and you just wanted to cushion the impact, mm-hmm. you know, you'd have the big air mattress. Yeah. But think of like a gymnast, for example, someone who actually has to stick the landing. Because in running, you do have to stick the landing. You can't just like smash into the ground and have this big foam thing there because you actually have to get off the ground again, stabilize that landing in mid-stance. That's where your foot's directly under your center of mass. So a gymnast, for example, is always in bare feet, and they're not landing on rock-hard concrete. There's a little mat there that's got just the right compliance. You know, it's kind of a firm compliance, you know, like a wrestling mat. Mm-hmm. And that's what a that's what a shoe should do. It helps you f- you have to have that tactile sense so your body can micro adjust probably millions of things every time you're you have 200,000 nerve endings in your feet that are there for a reason. I'm not here to claim I know what all 2,000 of them do, but they reset everything in the kinetic chain when you hit the ground so you don't have to like if you're trail running, you can't be thinking about well, I got to micro adjust, you know, this part of my calf muscle, loosen this. It all has to happen like that. So a gymnast actually feels the ground before they even hit the ground just because they've done it so much. They anticipate the landing. But if they had to land on a big foam pad and stick the landing, that they, they couldn't. Mm-hmm. The only time they use that is if they're practicing some maneuver and they just need a crash pad, mm-hmm. you know, if they're learning a new tumble. Mm-hmm. But every time they, like a, you know, an acrobat too. You know, someone on a high wire, their bare feet on the wire, mm-hmm. you know, or the rope, or mm-hmm. whatever they're walking on. They've got to feel that stuff. Yeah. But just try it, you know. And again, your mm-hmm. first minimal or barefoot run is not 10 miles. You know, like any training, it's a process. You know, if you're using, you know, the only people that get hurt putting minimal shoes on are people that really, they don't have the foot strength to even walk around. So we get people to walk in them first. I own mm-hmm. a shoe store. You know, then we get them to maybe walk, run a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know, but the first day you go to the gym, you might come back and you might be a little bit sore. Mm -hmm. That's not dangerous. That means you've used, you've woken something up, but just don't go do the same thing the next day. So if you have a brain and you listen to it, you'll do fine in the minimal shoes. I mean, what was your experience as you transitioned? Did you kind of do it smart and gradual and, and now you feel good in the shoes or did you 
being a being a college runner, first day you heard about these shoes and do your usual workout. How, how was your entry in? Yeah, I stepped into it because I I've become very sensitive over the years to, to these things, and I, I I've learned a little bit and talked to you know wise folks like yourself, and so I went to a shoe that had less drop, and then yeah. eventually to the zero drop. Yeah, smart. Because I'd, I'd been coming from the, the big airbag heel, and so it was it was something that I, I wanted to phase into over probably the process of you know maybe a year. Went through a pair of sneakers and then went through another pair of sneakers and and then got to it. Yeah, and, years about right. And for the folks out there that don't know what the word drop means, so mm-hmm. if you cut a shoe in half, kind of down the middle, the drop is the difference between the elevation in the heel and the elevation in the forefoot. So, for example, a high heel shoe obviously has got a big drop. It's kind of that angle, you know. It's like a ramp. So, the, a lot of most running shoes have about an inch ramp mm-hmm. between the heel and the ball of the foot, and that's profound if you look at the percent grade. Mm-hmm. And that changes how your foot interacts with the ground a lot, mm-hmm. how your ankle interacts with the ground. So, everything changes when you do that. But it's a process to go back to flat. So that's why I think kids are important. So if the kids never put heels on, then they don't have to do this one or two year transition back. Just just like if they don't eat sugar, then they don't have to, you know, yeah, where where is it irreversible? I, I don't know. Mm. It's, it, it's happening so early now with kids that once a child is obese at like age four or five, their odds of becoming an obese adult is pretty much 100%. There's something that's... We're trying to. That's why, like, if you're going to do nothing, policy-wise, is restrict all this stuff from the youngest. Mm-hmm. Then we need to figure out what to do with everyone <laughs> who's got the problem. That's a different story. But prevention is 100%. Work upstream. Mm-hmm. Same with running. You know, don't work upstream. Don't allow the scenario to get yourself hurt to begin with. Mm-hmm. And, and another trend that, that's that's starting to to really get some steam that you, you talk about in the book is. Um, is a mobility work, thinking of mobility yeah. as something that's crucial to your exercise regimen. And how did you come to that? How did you start to work that in? You know, getting old is, a, is I mean, not 52, I wouldn't say I'm old, but yeah, you have to kind of resist the forces of modern life. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, I've got to drive to work. Um, luckily, I work in a hospital, so I'm walking most mm-hmm. of the day. You know, I'm not sitting in front of a computer. I mean, you sit in front of the patient, talk to them, talk to the family, but you're walking, you know, you round, you know what I mean? We walk. So I'd say 80% of my workday is on my feet. Mm -hmm. I'll take the stairs. So the more just mobile you are in the day, the less you have to do to undo the stuff that happens in the day. But no kidding, if you drive two hours to work, sit eight hours, drive home, sit down for dinner, have elevated heel shoes, mm-hmm. you are super tight, you know, in your hip flexors, you know, all those muscles yeah. in the front of the hips, mm-hmm. which are really important because if those are super tight, you can't use your glute muscle, mm-hmm. which is the most powerful muscle. So mm-hmm. you've got this engine room you can't even engage. And your calf, plantar fascia, Achilles gets shortened if you're in the shoes, you know. So the body starts remodeling to these positions. So I'm at a stand up desk right now, mm-hmm. you know, I've got couple little half dome things I can stand on for my feet. So just find a way in your day to, and we talk about it in the book, just in mobility and movement, you know, your best position is your next position. So I'm not going to stand in front of this computer for 10 hours today, you know, I'll go out, do something else. Maybe I'll sit for a little bit or I'll, I'll lay on my belly and type a little bit. 
So just, you know, without driving yourself crazy, just keep mobile. You know, mm-hmm. don't sit. Sitting all day is just bad. So, mm-hmm. and I think even if you have a death, quote, desk job, there's so many simple and inexpensive things you, you can do now at your desk to not just be sitting at that desk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's obviously working for you. How, how many sub three marathons has it been? Yeah, I've done a sub three hour for 30 straight years. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I just ran a 302. So this year I, I ran a 304 at Boston mm-hmm. in the horrendous conditions. It was a 30 mile an hour headwinds and pouring rain. So I lined up on Sunday at the Marine Corps Marathon. It's been busy, mm-hmm. you know, just with finishing a book, kids. So mm-hmm. I gave it a go. I finished in 302. Wow. So I, I may let the streak die this year. Okay. But I think it goes into the book. So at a certain point, trying to shoot for time. So I, I feel good about what I did this Sunday. I stayed on, you know, ran 650 per mile for 22 miles, you know, just right on pace. But I haven't done a run more than 13 miles <laughs> since the Boston Marathon. Mm-hmm. So I haven't had time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I gave, you know, and you, the wheels come off a little the last three miles. And, I, you know, I just lost that spring. And mm-hmm. But to put in the amount of work I would need to keep running those fast times, I think other things in my life would suffer mm-hmm. and it might not be healthy. Mm. So I, I'm good with letting it go this year. Mm-hmm. You know, people are saying, "Aren't you going to kind of find another marathon in December?" And right now, I don't think so. No. I think I'll just do the smart thing and just be. I mean, 302. I'm happy with it, and I did give it my go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Set myself up to do the time. You know, just you know, ran the pace. But you know, I don't have time to do all these hard interval type workouts. Mm-hmm. Just if you know, if you're really pushing the edge, you know, you got to you got to inflict some of that stuff on, on yourself but there's a cost to that mm-hmm. year after year mm-hmm. so I, I think that's not a cost to, i'm willing to pay for the other things i'm doing in my life mm-hmm. yeah and i if, feel fine now two days later i'll go out and jog with my dog today so you know don't uh, inflict any damage on yourself yeah oh that's great yeah high, high volume training in, in my experience it becomes a lifestyle decision it has it has an impact it on is everything around you yeah, yeah. so Mark, before I ask my last question, where should people look for you online? Yeah, so we've got a couple places. You know, for the book, we made a website, runforyourlifebook.com, which has a lot of videos, instruction, exercises, articles. Um, I have a blog website called naturalrunningcenter.com, and that has a lot of information on running form, running shoes. If uh, a site that kind of links to a lot of things I do, race directing, some of the nutrition things we're doing, community work is called drmarksdesk.com. Okay. And that kind of links to a lot of different things. So those are good places to find me. If you're in West Virginia, uh, you know, come to our store, Two Rivers Treads, and that website for that is tworiverstreads.com. We have online store, and uh, if you purchase the book, I mean, I'm sorry, if you purchase $130 worth of anything there, we'll throw the book in, you know, for you. Because we want people to support small retail is something that's struggling in America. And, you know, Mm -hmm. small retail in small communities give back, you know. So I've got about six employees. And so these are local jobs, local taxes. You know, we pay rent in a local town. You know, but out there, you know, it's you can go on Amazon and get anything you want these days. But I think the service you get in these small, whether it's a local restaurant, just think about that next time you purchase something. You know, even if it's a big box store in your local town, none of that money stays local. Mm-hmm. So the only money that really stays local are small local businesses, locally owned, locally employed that mm-hmm. don't have corporate offices in some other place. Mm-hmm. 
so that's really my pride is doing is doing things like that and you know directing races too we have a big race called freedoms run mm-hmm. that we just finished we have another one in the in the spring harper's ferry half marathon so we get people into the national parks mm-hmm. we write about it all in the book i mean that's really the joy is you know I, I could really care less what my times are now if i see new people in my community getting out and running and setting personal bests and achieving goals you know that's what there's there's the joy right there yeah very cool very cool so mark my final question is you're you're a leader, you're a physician, you're, you're in the Air Force. How can a leader create a culture of being healthy? I think, uh, you know, you just got to live it yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, you know, it's like any military leader. I mean, I don't think by intent they, you know, are going to go to leadership school and watch some PowerPoints and, and be a leader, right? Or, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you know how that all goes. You know, the online courses, read a few books on leadership. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, I got this. No, I mean, I think it just evolves as you have to learn. I mean, first of all, you just have to watch life go by and, and you kind of see what what are people doing that's sticky, mm-hmm. you know, that's good and how do they behave and how do they bring people along? And it's not by force. It's, you know, follow me and join me and be willing to make all the mistakes, but just show up every day, right? Just like your training partners, show up every day, mm-hmm. you know, do the the elbow grease work, you know, so, you know, I direct these races and I'm the first one out there and I'm the last one to go home, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, chucking cones into trucks, <laughs> all that stuff. Yeah. You, know, you just be out there, you know, you go out on the group run and you run with the slowest one there, you know, you host the workshops and the seminars, but just be there and just keep showing up and, you know, and write about it. I think ultimately, you know, it's, it's hard. The hardest thing is actually putting your thoughts to pen and writing it, you know, if, if that's not your background. So you can do all that, but then, okay, to pass, to really pass it forward. That's why I feel good about getting the book done. That took like five years, you know, because I don't have any time, Brandon. It's like, and to write, you know, gosh, you got to like block off a few hours with no distraction. That's hard to do. So like in little chunks, I was able to put this together and finally like I'm done so I can pass on some through that you know because I think if you are going to lead you have to mentor and pass it forward and bring people along that if you know I've decided to go away someone else is going to be able to pick it up and run with it and I feel in my community we have wonderful people who are like if you know I got deployed or something for a year nothing's going to fall apart everything will just keep rolling along and that's the good that's the sweet spot right there is when you have people who can step in. Mm-hmm. Well, Mark, that's great. And I'm, I'm so glad you did take the time to write the book. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. No, well, thank you. And thanks for having me on, Brandon, and for reading the book and you know, sharing the story. Everybody, that was Dr. Mark Cuchizella, founder of the United States Air Force Efficient Running Program and author of Born to Run.